0: Things are easy for me. I'm not the kind of person who had to struggle in school. It's weird to say, I'm Amanda Knox, and things are easy for me. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) well,
1: your mid-20s were kind of (laughs) hard. The mid-20s were a setback.
0: Hello and welcome. I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks
2: for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Joining me today is Amanda Knox. Amanda, along with her husband, Christopher Robinson, have created a podcast called Labyrinths, Getting Lost with Amanda Knox. They interview so many amazing people, many who have also been exonerated. We will be talking about the podcast, the Innocence Project, Infertility, and so much more. Help me welcome Amanda Knox. Thank you so much for having
0: me. I
2: saw the labyrinth that you guys were doing and I love them.
0: Oh, yay. Yay. Thank you. Yeah, we're we're really excited. It's a project that I've been working on with my husband since November. I mean, I guess throughout the entire pandemic and everything. We actually just released season two today, which is I
2: was listening on my way in and crying. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) I should maybe do a content warning.
2: No, you know, know, I love how real it is. And I love that about you. You're not afraid to talk about the hard things. And I had two miscarriages and my kids are in their thirties now. And I remember people just kept saying stupid things like, well, it was meant to be, it's like, you want to just punch them in the face and you try to be nice, but it's really hard.
0: Yeah, I, and I I feel like the idea is they're trying to make you feel better, like they're trying to make you feel like your your suffering has some kind of purpose, but really it feels disempowered because in that moment you don't have that purpose and you have to define that purpose to yourself. It's not just this guaranteed thing that everything that happens to you, especially the things that hurt, are there for a reason. You have to like build your own like story around your own pain and to make meaning out of it. Like it doesn't feel good to be told, well, you shouldn't really feel bad about that because it was supposed to happen.
2: I think you're very gracious because I think people say those things
0: because they're uncomfortable. Mm, To make themselves feel better. (laughs) Yeah, it's probably a mixture of both. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. I was going to talk about your new podcast at the end, but let's just start with this because it's kind of a different format. You're doing five episodes on infertility.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I wasn't anticipating spending a whole mini series basically on this topic, but what I discovered in having this miscarriage and struggling through it and being really surprised was there is a whole world of infertility struggle that I just did not know about. It is huge, it's a huge world and there's all these incredible stories. I just thought, well, I I can't just do one story. Like I I reached out on social media, all of these incredible women and couples and men reached out to me to to offer their support and to tell their own stories of dealing with this struggle. They truly were like, this is the most lost I have ever felt. I thought, well, you know what? I have to honor that, that labyrinth and tell it to the best of my ability. And that required giving it some space. So, yes, in this whole upcoming season of the podcast, which is going to be, you know, 25 episodes long, it's going to be mini series interspersed with individual episodes with fascinating guests. So, yeah.
2: Well, so far, so good. And like I said, I love your honesty and how you're able to talk about things that most people won't talk about. And that's probably why people are attracted to you because you just say it like it is, mm. you know, beat around the bush. And I love that you were able to show your raw emotion and talk about how it was your baby before it was a baby.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. I've been occasionally accused by some of TMI, <laughs> but honestly, I think there's TLI in a lot of cases. So right. I'm totally willing to bite the bullet and push the envelope a little bit more than what people tend to feel comfortable with in order to make space for people to feel comfortable with maybe a little less
2: (laughs) well and i love that it's called labyrinths getting lost with amanda knox that lost feeling and it's so much more i mean it's physical it's mental emotional it's the loss of a dream. You've already made plans. Like you said, I can't imagine that baby's room after the kind of wedding you had.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Totally. We've decked it out. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And it's the existential crisis of it is the thing that really stuck with me because you think that you're on this path in life and you're going to be this person, you're going to be this parent. And then suddenly through no fault of your own, that is taken from you and you have to redefine your sense of self given this new unexpected information that seems so unfair and for that reason it also stayed with me because it's like that sort of perfectly describes what it's like to be wrongly convicted. Like, here you are just living your life, doing your thing, and suddenly what you thought your life was going to be is stolen from you. And then you have to have that existential crisis of figuring out, well, now what? Who am I if I'm not a parent? Or who am I if I'm wrongly convicted and spending the rest of my life in prison for something I didn't do? Like, in both of those situations, you feel trapped by a life that you did not expect to live. And it was through no fault of your own.
2: Right. It's like that helpless thing, but how do you
0: get out of being a victim when you're going through these things? And I think the main issue with that question is I think a lot of people feel like if you have to push aside or bottle up the pain or the, or the experience that you're going through in order to not be a victim. And in my experience, that is actually a really good way to be an unhealthy Victim. And instead, the best way to do it is to have the courage to look in the face your own pain and be able to, in that process, put it in front of you instead of have it be this thing that's on top of you. When it's in front of you, you can shape it, define the contours of your life around it. And it no longer feels like it's this defining thing. It's this thing that you are defining. That is what takes a victim to a survivor status because all of this is the raw material of our lives. And we have to make sense of it. And it's the only person who has the responsibility and the duty to make sense of it is yourself.
2: Well, and I love how not only did you tell your story, but now you're telling other people's stories. So season one, there were so many things like I love the woman from Bremerton that was wanted to be working in government.
0: Oh, oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Tara Simmons. Amazing.
2: Right, man. I just looked her up. I followed her. I was like, good for her. Well, you had Lavar Le- Burton, who we all, you know, we with.
0: all just worship.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and then you were so brave to do the episode of defending a monster.
0: Mm, thank what was it like
2: for you to talk to them?
0: I mean, I encounter this problem in the world of criminal justice quite a bit where we tend to think that if you are defending the rights of a person that necessarily means that you are justifying their actions or you are quote siding with them And I think that that is a really dangerous line to draw in the criminal justice system. If we want to be responsible and actually think about what impact we have decided to make on another human being, we need to have rules and we need to have rights. And somebody, it's somebody's job to protect those rights and those people shouldn't suffer consequences for doing so in fact they're doing a job that none of us want to do so if anything we kind of owe it to them to at at the very least not attack them and not vilify them for doing a very difficult job
2: unfortunately i think it's easy to put a judgment when Mm -hmm. we all think somebody's definitely guilty Mm -hmm. you know like they don't deserve
0: anything but what if they're actually not, right? Mm-hmm. And so in this I- case, it's interesting because at no point were they arguing for his innocence, right? Like they were like, he's guilty. So let's talk about what the consequences are going to be and let's make sure that those consequences are fair. And that was enough for people to be like, we hate you. How dare you? You're <laughs> like, we yeah. want this you We want to treat this guy like a scapegoat. And it's like, I, I appreciate that. But like someone's job yeah. is to say, okay, we know that this person needs to be held responsible. Let's do this responsibly.
2: <laughs> yeah. And here they are, their moms, these normal people. And suddenly they, they're they defending Larry Nasser. All of a sudden they become the enemies. Mm-hmm. And so I loved your spin on it. You talked a lot about the Innocence Project. Can you say more about that?
0: Oh, gosh. I mean, I could go forever about the Innocence Project. The Innocence Project began in New York. It is an organization, nonprofit. Its sole purpose is to exonerate the wrongfully convicted. So it was founded by Peter Newfeld and Barry Sheck, who wanted to basically put resources towards looking at these old cases that were pushed under the rug, and tried to bring in new DNA evidence and technology to re-examine the evidence in these cases and see if they could prove the innocence of people who had been long thrown away in prison for the rest of their lives for crimes that they claimed that they didn't commit. And lo and behold, science has allowed us to prove the innocence of hundreds of people here in the United States. And many of those people were on death row So it really causes us to question one, a lot of these cases where we have DNA evidence that wasn't really able to be analyzed, but also the things that we have used as evidence to find people guilty that were clearly wrong, right? And like a major factor of that is confession evidence. Like people think that if a person confessed, it's this gold standard, an innocent person would never do that. A police officer could never compel someone to testify against themselves. And lo and behold, that happens in at least one in four cases of wrongful conviction. It is so common. So it really causes us to question how we've been deciding the guilt of people all along and whether or not we can put into practice new practices that'll protect the innocent and understand better how these things happen. So not only do they work on getting people
2: freed, they also are working on like legislation and... Oh,
0: absolutely. Yeah. In the United States, basically almost every state has its own Innocence Project by now. These are separate organizations that work together, that are a part of what it's called an Innocence Network. It's sort of a loosely based affiliation where we're all in contact with each other. We're all sharing resources with each other, but ultimately everyone's working on their own cases in their own spaces. And I talk about this a little bit in an episode of Labyrinths where I interview Obi Anthony, who is an exoneree from California. He was exonerated through the Northern California Innocence Project. And he has since worked on legislation with the Innocence Project to try to also provide resources for exonerees once they get out of prison. Because another one of these sort of developments is we discover that wrongful convictions happen. All these innocent people get out and they're just like, I haven't had a job in 20 years. What am I going to do? <laughs> and there's nowhere for them to go. And he's like, well, maybe we should be helping these people with housing, with jobs, with medical insurance, that kind of thing. Are you on the board? Or are you just a volunteer? Well, so I am an exoneree, which means I am part of the family. And it means that when the Innocence Project is looking to help raise awareness or help do fundraising. Um, I'm often called in as someone who can speak to the truth of this reality and try to invite people to join the fold in supporting the Innocence Project. So whether that be with fundraising or whether it be with my journalism, where I write about cases that Innocence Projects are working on, these are all ways that I try to contribute to the community, but I'm not actively on a board. I I am actively on a board of something called the Frederick Douglass Project for Justice, which is an organization that seeks to put incarcerated people in contact with non-incarcerated people. So basically to to bridge the gap, to, to cross the wall, as it were, so that we can imagine ourselves in the place of these individuals who have found themselves in prison for circumstances that may or may not be their fault, right? Like everyone who goes to prison is not innocent, obviously. And I met a fair number of guilty people in prison, but I, having lived alongside them, I got a greater perspective for their humanity and the circumstances that led them to make the bad choices that led them to prison in the first place. It's way more complicated than good people that stay out of prison and there are bad people who go to prison. And I think that putting ourselves into contact with those individuals will help us better understand why crimes are committed in the first place and what we can do as a society to better make it so that people don't feel compelled to commit crimes.
2: I can't remember who said this, but they said it's harder to hate people close up. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. When you get that, I love what
0: you said, the humanity. Prisons have been hit so hard by the pandemic. So, so hard. People have been getting so sick. It has been a disaster. So it's always so hard to to get the information and the data about all of this. You have to fight for it every step of the way. We're working on it.
2: (laughs) Tell me about your tattoo. Oh, yeah. Which one?
0: (laughs) Well, both of them. Well, maybe this one is the most relevant. Well, I guess they're kind of both relevant. So this one, and I guess I should describe it to listeners. Yes. It, it, a lot of people think that it's like a heartbeat, but it's actually a resistor. It's a resistor symbol from electrical engineering. What a resistor does in electrical engineering is it controls the current. It limits the what current goes in and what current can go out. And the idea behind that is it's a symbol for, for skepticism. So I'm going to be mindful about what kind of information I bring in and I'm gonna be mindful about what information that I put out because I want to always be a conductor of the truth and not just a conductor of whatever happens my way. These symbols is a series of symbols that is kind of like a playbook for dealing with difficult topics or issues that you may find what you disagree with someone about. So say there's any given issue, you're across from somebody, they may take a very different position than you. What should you do when you're talking to them? Well, there's a Venn diagram here that says find common ground. There is a helmet here. That means steel man, the other person's argument. So instead of tearing down the weakest form of their argument, really try to understand the best, strongest form of their argument and say it back to them so that they say to you, yes, that's exactly what I mean. The heart is have compassion and the Delta symbol is be willing to change your mind. So,
2: well, you had a good chance to incorporate all of that during a pandemic, (laughs)
0: Yeah. And, and all of these topics, like that's the only way to tackle difficult topics. It takes intellectual work. It takes emotional work and that work I have found is worth it. So. And it's
2: very intentional. I love that. That is such a great way to approach things because otherwise we're just making enemies and you're trying to find that common ground. That is so so wise, but uh, we all know you're very wise.
0: Thank you. Now I think there's a, a great African proverb that says, listen to what the person says, not who the person is necessarily. So like, I think that ideas always should have their own merit, regardless of where they're coming from. Then also be willing to reconsider your thoughts about a person giving the new information and the new ideas that are coming your way from that person. So...
2: Yeah, and you're separating the person from the idea.
0: Yeah, well, it's because people identify with ideas. They attach judgments to people who hold ideas without even understanding what potentially those ideas are. This is not a judgment on people. Like this is a very natural, instinctual thing to do. It's it's our way of interacting with each other and finding our tribe. <laughs> like it's, it's literally like what we were instinctually meant to do. But if we genuinely want to tackle difficult topics, to make connections across dividing lines, we have to do extra work that goes against a little bit of our base nature.
2: So can we talk a little bit about you and your husband? I love this story. Yeah. Anyone wants to hear all of her amazing stories, go to the Labyrinth's podcast, wherever you get your podcast and subscribe. I love it
0: because I think it was hard for you when you came back it's a challenge, especially when you're in a position where you're behind a counter. And, and so you're at the mercy of whoever's in front of you. And I've definitely been in a position when I was working at a bookstore, someone coming in and yelling at me and I had to be like, I had to hide in the back room. It would. Yeah, no, it's a big deal. And also, you know, I'm thinking, well, if someone knows that I work here, then maybe they're going to discover what my schedule is and where and follow me and find out where I live, and then maybe murder me because I've gotten death threats before. So there's all these like things that I have to think about when it comes to just doing the normal things a normal person has to do. But yes, I met my husband when I was writing anonymously for a local newspaper and I was doing arts correspondence and I was given an advanced copy of his novel, The War of the Encyclopedists, and I wrote a rave review. I thought it was great. I was never planning on meeting this person. I didn't meet people. Are you kidding me? That's not what I do. And it just so happened that I walked out of my apartment building the next day and saw that he he was doing a book reading of this. And there was a book reading of this very book happening at my local bookstore and i thought well that's a little serendipitous maybe i can just sort of sneak in and hide in the back and then you know check out this book reading of all things and of course i go there and it's it's lovely and i ask him and his co-author for an interview that interview was great we had a good time we talked star trek we we <laughs> you know we talked scotch and at the end of the night he was like hey we should be friends and it just That like small gesture really stuck with me because I, for so long, hadn't been in the position of just being a person who could just make friends in the world. The fact that he was not just asking me about all the facts of the case and was not like that, that wasn't his entry point into understanding who I was as a person. He just hung out with me. And then over the course of our, our friendship, we became more intimate and started dating. And eventually he had to become an expert in the case because suddenly people were Photoshopping knives into his hands and claiming that he had like a knife fetish because he was dating me. So he became an expert in his own right and is now, you know, my partner in all the things that I do. He knows everything and he's a wonderful, wonderful partner. I feel really lucky.
2: And you guys do so well together on your podcasts.
0: Thank you.
2: The way you just interact and you both bring really a difference. He's like pretty serious, (laughs) very thoughtful, and he's got that deep voice. And you bring this intellect, but also the lighter
0: side. Oh, that's an interesting way of looking at it because I feel like he is so funny. He makes me laugh every day. Mm -hmm. But maybe I just think serious people are hilarious. (laughs) I don't
2: know. When I was listening to your newest episode today, and you said, I'm Amanda Knox. Things are easy for me. Why can't you? <laughs> and then he's, you start laughing. He's like, yeah, well, the, the 20s were a little rough. <laughs>
0: yeah. there was a little setback. <laughs> it
2: isn't real dry humor, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's been your favorite episode so far?
0: So, one of my favorite episodes so far has been probably a suitcase full of diapers, which is my dear friend Tom. He's not one of these like famous names of people I could tell you. Oh, yeah. We interviewed. Andrew Yang and Dave Navarro and all these like cool famous people but my friend Tom his pandemic experience of trying to be there for his partner as she's pregnant with his first child and having everything be thwarted to for him to achieve that purpose like my heart just was going out to him so hard and like I just cannot imagine his struggle to grapple with that like how do you miss out on the birth of your first child and like to be there for your partner because the global pandemic just landed on you like what is happening so That is an episode that I really love because he is just such a kind and generous person. I just wish that he could have had that experience and I wish him the best. What's another one of my favorite episodes? A favorite of a lot of people's was the Samantha Geimer episode. And we were actually nominated for a Webby Award for that episode because it tackled the issue of what do we do when a rape victim wants to resolve the crime that happened to her in a way that doesn't seem to satisfy the, the social norms about like retribution and, and punishment. What do we do about that? And does the criminal justice system owe something to the victim who, who doesn't want to punish but wants to just feel safe and acknowledged and move on with her life? And are we putting victims of of crimes through more trauma by forcing them to be these sort of pawns in this retribution game? It's a very, very difficult scenario, but it's also one that's way more common in rape cases than people are willing to acknowledge, that a lot of the times people are being raped by people they love or they trust or who are friends of theirs, And they don't want to ruin that person's life. They don't want to be responsible for that. They just don't want it to happen again. And they don't want, they want it to be acknowledged. They don't want to be pitted in this like life or death stakes scenario. And I think that that is a really difficult, fair question to ask. And anyone who looks at Samantha Geimer and says, you are a traitor to other victims of rape because you aren't seeking the fullest extent of the law, like that is a incredibly unempathetic, hurtful thing to say. I greatly respect her strength in being willing to like stand up for what she believes in um, because there's a lot of pressure out there to do what you're quote expected to do in these scenarios. And really it's a deeply, deeply personal thing. Your trauma is always yours and belongs to you. So you should be able to define it's, terms. The criminal justice system just treats everything. It's a hammer that treats everything like a nail. We need more nuance than that.
2: Well, I love it that you are able to ask these hard questions. And thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it.
0: No, I'm just so grateful that you have brought up Labyrinths and I'm so excited about the work. It's just going to keep coming out. So stay tuned.
2: Yeah, I'm really
0: excited. And even though you're shifting a little,
2: I feel like that has come with what we've all been learning through what you're doing. So it feels very natural. What do you want people to know? I mean, about anything that you've gone through
0: so much. I think that, oh gosh, I feel like I'm still constantly learning from the experience I went through and and the repercussions of it. So I don't have any stern pronouncements about the way the world is or anything like that. I think that instead, what I would say is, It really, really matters to care about what is true and to be willing to reassess what you believe based upon new evidence. I constantly find myself in a world that seems resistant to that. And I've I've felt my own resistance to that. If we ultimately care about what's real We just need to be in the practice of pausing and considering that what we believe may not be the way things really are. So that has been a huge lesson for me that I carry forward and and one that I hope my listeners take to heart.
2: And then what about infertility do you want people to know? (laughs)
0: <laughs> what an insane journey that has so many survivors. And it seems like everywhere you turn, somebody has a story and yet no one's talking about it. What is the secret? What is this secret club that we seemingly all belong to? And why haven't we met up before? So <laughs> if anything, you know what? It's time. It's the time of TMI. I'm down. <laughs> Give it to me. <laughs>
2: Well, thank you so much, Amanda. I really appreciate you coming
0: on the show. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Welcome back. Since our launch last October, we've brought you stories of getting lost and getting found, of being stuck in the labyrinth of your own life.
0: We've had some amazing guests like Andrew Yang, Malcolm Gladwell, John Ronson, Dave Navarro, and LeVar Burton.
1: And we moved week by week from the tragic to the humorous to the controversial. We were nominated for a Webby Award for our episode with Samantha Geimer about her rape by Roman Polanski.
0: And we occasionally got personal, discussing the lasting fallout of my wrongful conviction, like our episode about the release of Meredith Kircher's killer, Rudy Gade.
1: If you haven't binged our first 25 episodes, there's no time like the present. As we move ahead though, we'll be doing things a little differently.
0: We're going to deep dive into subjects like the ethics of true crime journalism, psychedelic mushrooms, and the satanic panic, giving each of these labyrinths its own multi-part miniseries.
1: We'll still have standalone interviews with fascinating guests and lots of bonus content for our Patreon subscribers. But for now, we're getting more personal than we ever have and bringing you our first miniseries infertility.
2: I'm Lori Hardy. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community.